Today's message is the third in a new series we're doing on the Apostles' Creed. Our pastor has already covered the importance of creeds and why we as a church would even use one in our worship. And so if you've missed those messages, I would encourage you to backtrack and listen to those online at some point to get that context. In this next section of the creed that we're covering today, uh, it continues to unfold what the Bible teaches about God the Son, uh, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, of the triune God. Specifically, the segment for today's message presents us with the virgin birth of Jesus and consequently the essence of his being God and man at the same time. I would encourage you to take a Bible now and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. We're going to begin with verse 26. If you would like to follow along and need a Bible, just grab one out of the pew rack in front of you. And you can find this passage on page 855 there. We'll read through verse 38. Again, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Please stand for the reading of God's word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said... Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we know that all of your word speaks to us and is profitable for our improving our faith, for our becoming more like Christ, for our spiritual journey. So today, Lord, would you speak to us through your word? And when we leave here, may we radiate the glory of Christ to those who see us, and may we exalt your name wherever we find ourselves. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Wow, what an incredible story. We take it for granted, we hear it every Christmas, but what an incredible story. And I mean the true sense of that word. We could even say what a fantastic story. And yet it's also a very human story a shocking story, 
Ladies, imagine. Here you are, very likely a good girl from a good home. You're probably about 13 years of age. Your folks have found you a match, which in the culture and society you live in is the best you can hope for. It's a good thing. Now we gotta get past the ick factor of Mary's age, right? Because it was a different time, a different culture. It's the way things were. It was normal. So there you are anticipating your upcoming wedding and your future life with Joseph and all of a sudden God comes crashing into your life in a very disruptive and very unanticipated way. Boom. An otherworldly being enters your room scaring you half to death with a message from God. You're gonna get pregnant and have a son. His name has already been chosen, Jesus. He's going to be a great man. People will call him the son of the most high. He will be worshiped. This baby boy, Mary, is going to take back David's throne. After 600 years of being tossed about, Israel's gonna have a king again. And it's gonna be your baby boy. And to top it off, he is Messiah. His reign will be forever. And the kingdom of Israel will be forever from that point on. I don't care how mature Mary was, this would have been a lot for a 13-year-old girl to take in. But Mary never got past the first thing out of Gabriel's mouth. Excuse me, what was that first part again when you said, I'm going to be pregnant before I get married? Mary may have been young, but she knew how these things work. And in her conservative religious community, there was a very specific order of events that had to happen for a young woman to have a child, and marriage was at the top of that list, not at the bottom. Anything else, and you risked being an outcast at best, possibly being stoned and killed. The angel had incredibly good news for the world in what he said to Mary, but all she could hear was scandal. She defended her honor to Gabriel, saying, in essence, no, you've got the wrong girl here. I'm not like that. And she was right. It's that very fact, her virginity, that God needed for this birth. For this child was his son. This birth would be like no other. This child would be both God and man. The impossible, the unthinkable, the science-defying miracle of a virgin birth was now going to be a reality. For with God, nothing is impossible. In Matthew's gospel, we see Joseph's journey through this same scenario. His, too, is a very human experience. He did what any one of us would have done, men, probably any good man. He thought to himself, well, Mary's apparently messed up but I'm not going to publicly humiliate her. I'm not gonna bring her up on charges. I'm just gonna quietly go to the elders and seek an annulment before we go any further and we will part in peace. She'll go her way and I'll go mine. What a just and grace-filled man Joseph must have been. But Gabriel came to Joseph too and explained what was going on as he did to Mary. And these two normal, simple folk 
from the backwater of Nazareth, who before this occasion were destined for a simple life of obscurity, responded in simple, humble obedience to the life that God was giving them. And this, of course, is just the beginning. There would be many more difficulties and sorrows ahead, being the earthly parents of Jesus. But think of what was ultimately wrought from that simple act of obedience. God doesn't usually call his people to an easy life, but he does call us to an abundant life. And as we exercise simple obedience to his will for us, whatever that may be, he provides grace in the measure of our need all along the way. Try him in that, and he'll prove it. I think it could be argued that there is no other teaching from the Christian Bible that's been more contested than the one we're looking at today. For 2,000 years, it's been one of the first attacks made against Christianity by other religions, atheists, cults, and even from within our own ranks. One of the watershed moments in Christianity concerning this doctrine was in the fourth century. At that time, false teachers headed up by a man named Arius were denying the deity of Christ among other things. And so a church council was called to address the issues. It was held from May to August in the year 325, the lakeside town of Nicaea, about 90 miles south of Constantinople, what is today Istanbul, Turkey. It was here that, you've heard this before, that legend tells us that St. Nicholas punched Arius on the debate floor for his terrible heresy. Apparently, Arius missed the uh, you better watch out part of St. Nick's poem. <clears throat> One of the results of this meeting was the Nicene Creed. We use this creed from time to time at SAPC, and you'll find it in the back of our hymnal on page 846. The creed in many ways resembles the Apostles' Creed in verbiage and structure. But its first major addition is when it gets to the part that we're discussing today. Notice how they fleshed out what in the Apostles' Creed reads, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Here's the Nicene. Begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. There would be no further debate as far as the council was concerned. Jesus was fully God and Jesus was fully man. This teaching of two natures in one person is inextricably linked to the virgin birth. As we will see, if Jesus was conceived and born in the normal fashion, he could not have been our savior. And if God simply cloaked himself in some human form, then he could not be the Messiah. Jesus had to be fully God and fully man to be God's redeemer, and the virgin birth was God's means of accomplishing this miracle. And yes, it was a miracle. 
something completely impossible in the natural world, unthinkable and unscientific. But that's what makes it a miracle. And the one performing this miracle is the one who laid out all the rules to begin with. And as a result, can supersede those rules by the word of his power, should he choose to do so. If you have difficulty believing the veracity of the virgin birth because it doesn't fit into your natural world paradigm, then you're gonna have all kinds of trouble with the actions and claims of the God of the Bible. Our entire faith is one that is miraculous and divine in origin. If God fit into my small, miracleless understanding of the cosmos, then he would be a God that I carved out of the soft clay of my foolish mind. He most certainly wouldn't be a God worth worshiping. The virgin birth and the two natures of Christ are foundational tenets of the Christian faith and are non-negotiables. If you encounter teaching outside this orthodoxy, it is not Christianity, period. The Christian faith rises or falls with this teaching. It is either true or it is not. And if it is not, then our religion is vanity. So our first point, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And the question following, why is it necessary that Jesus is God? Let's take a look at Hebrews chapter seven. Beginning with verse 23. We're told that Jesus is a better high priest than the earthly priests of the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews. For one, they were finite humans and had a limited lifespan to accomplish their work. However, here we read, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So why is it necessary that Jesus is God? If Jesus were only human, he could not have fulfilled the demand for perfect obedience required of the Lamb of God. Only a holy, innocent, and exalted God could provide that. In addition, if Jesus were only human, his sacrifice would have had limits as to its effectiveness. How could one man's laying down his life save more than one other man, let alone billions some who had lived for thousands of years before him and others thousands of years after. Only an eternal, all-powerful God could, in a single moment of time, offer up himself as a sacrifice for all of his people for all time. And if Jesus were only human, he could not be our intercessor, providing us with righteousness before God and giving us his sonship access to God. Only an ever-present, all-knowing God could provide intercession for all of his people at all times before his Father in heaven. Folks, God had to intervene 
He had to descend into this world in order to save us. Only he, in the person of his son, had the credentials to provide salvation for his people. And outside of that, we're lost forever. Jesus was also born of the Virgin Mary, the creed says. So why is it necessary that Jesus is man? Sounds like God was able to accomplish all of that. Well, let's take a look at Romans 5, starting with verse 18. Here Paul is juxtaposing Adam and Jesus. And he's giving us the reason that Jesus had to be a man. Therefore, as one trespass, Adam's, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Paul further clarifies in 1 Corinthians, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Why is it necessary for Jesus to be a man? Adam was our rightful chief, our ambassador, our federal head, our representative before a holy God. He failed in that role, and all humanity with him. And it all came plunging into a hopeless state of separation from God and hostility with God. The rebellion began with a man and had to be healed by a man. We needed a second Adam to represent us. It had to be one of us. If Jesus had only been God disguised with human likeness, he couldn't have been our representative. God gave his law to humanity. Only a perfect, sinless human could walk in obedience to that law, fulfilling what none of the rest of us could have ever done. Had Jesus only been God and not been fully human, he would not be our brother and we could not receive the adoption of sons that he gives us. He could not have secured our eternal inheritance and glory. These are just some of the very important reasons that Jesus had to be God and that Jesus had to be man. So we come to that conclusion that Jesus Christ is one person with two distinct and complete natures. Well, how come he couldn't have come down and been man for a while and then gone back to being God? Why, why is it necessary that Jesus is God and man at the same time? Listen to Hebrews 4. This is some of my favorite scriptures. I love this passage and use it often. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
Why is it necessary that Jesus is God and man at the same time? Had Jesus not been both fully human and fully God in one person, he could not have spanned the gulf that separated God from his creation. It was necessary, as the larger catechism says, that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us and relied on by us as the works of the whole person. What a beautiful love story this is we have in the Bible. An unimaginable intersection of the divine with the human. And at his ascension, Jesus didn't shed himself of his humanity as though it were a used up costume, an unimportant component of his glorified being. No, for in his humanity, he retains the confines and limitations of that body, bearing also the scars of the wounds he endured for you and for me. The God of the universe did not enter into our world for a time and then return to his former state. No, he became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ for all eternity. And wrapped up in that person, is the full manifestation of who God is for his people. To know Jesus is to know God in his fullness. So you may ask, how can Jesus still have the limitations of a human body, albeit a resurrected one, and still be the eternal, ever-present God? Well, quite honestly, I have no idea. But I know both are true, and I do not hesitate to embrace it. For it is a beautiful truth that is too wonderful for my finite mind to fully comprehend. And so I pause. I marvel. I wonder. And I worship. The Apostle John assures us, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Oh, what glory is ours, what hope we have. So are you living your life with an understanding of what the God-man, Jesus Christ, has done and is doing in your life? Or do you live oblivious to it as though it had no bearing on anything? Do you, as we read in the book of Hebrews, draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that you may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need? Because there, at the throne of grace, Right there in the throne room of heaven is one who is standing. Standing for you. Jesus Christ, the man. The man that Adam couldn't be. The man that we could never have been. Finally, after thousands of years, God had become man. Finally, the covenant promise that began in the Garden of Eden was being fulfilled in the conception and birth of Jesus. Can you see them there in the garden, Adam and Eve? 
ashamed, afraid, embarrassed, guilt-ridden, aware of their nakedness and vulnerability before a holy God, the guilty pair bowed down by the immense weight of sin and guilt, awaiting the pronouncement of judgment and death, which was surely theirs. But there in that pronouncement was something unexpected. They couldn't have comprehended it. But with New Testament eyes of faith, we can. To Satan, the instigator of sin and the curse, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Yes, Satan, you will get the death and misery that you so desire, but I will endure the judgment due them through the bruising of my son. He will be one of them and he will be God. And beneath his heel at the foot of the cross, your head will lie crushed in defeat. The seed of Eve conceived in Mary's womb by the spirit of God would win the day. N.T. Wright says, the word through whom all things were made is now the word through whom all things are remade. Folks, Adam is dead and buried, awaiting the resurrection of the dead. Not only did he fail us in the garden, but we can't even go up to him now and whine and complain about it. But Jesus our second Adam. Not only is he not dead, but if you confess him as Lord and Savior, he conquered death for you and gave you a present, everlasting life in a spick and span, good again, brand new heaven and earth. Not only that, but he's taken away all that icky guilt, shame and depravity that we were drowning in before he saved us. And he promises that it'll all be completely gone one day, really soon. He stands for you. He stands there next to the high king of heaven as a mediator who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, a friend who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He stands there for you and for me, pleading our case to the judge of the universe, not as an aloof, out-of-touch deity who doesn't get us, but as one of us, knowing firsthand our condition, our frailty. Does Jesus understand does he care about what you are going through? Can he really be truly an empathetic high priest? Is he really a friend that sticks closer than a brother? Yes. Yes. Yes.
and he has to be, for he is our only hope. Do you know this God-man that we have confessed today? The one that we've sung about, prayed to, worshiped, and the one who is fully God and fully man? Not do you know about him. Do you know him? Can you say confidently that right now, in heaven, that Jesus stands for you? If not, call out to him and he will save you. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And if you need some help understanding that further, come speak with one of our pastors, one of our elders, or a wise sister of this congregation, and let us share with you the words of life. And if Jesus is indeed pleading your case before the Father today, if you are his, what's your response to that? What do you do with that? The old gospel song said, what will you do with Jesus? What's your response to God stooping so low and bearing so much for us? Isaac Watts in his great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, sums up our response this way. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love that so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The intersection of God and man and the person and work of Jesus Christ warrants no less than offering everything I am. Weak as I am, flawed as I am, human as I am. Folks, sometimes I think on a daily basis, what can God ever do with me? I'm a mess. But it's not because of me. It is because of the coming of God in flesh that we are worth the price of his son to him. We don't have the luxury of hearing God's word and not responding so in some way. The call of the gospel into the believer's life demands a response. The call and the invitation is always with you in the spirit of Christ. Whether that call comes through the preaching of the word, a Bible study class, and the stillness of your own private devotions, we cannot remain neutral when confronted by God's word. So the question is, will you yield your life and heart to the one who stands for you? Or will you stand fixed and unmovable, guarding your heart from his transforming love and grace? Jesus, the one who took on flesh for you, wants all of you. He wants your will. He wants your mind. He wants your money and possessions. He wants your time. And he wants your talents. And he's given you a place to invest all of the above for the glory of his name and the growth of his kingdom. It's right here at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in this community of Irmo, South Carolina. We are the church of Jesus Christ.
We are a small segment of that. But we have a high and large calling, folks. If we're not about the gospel getting into our community and the world, who will be? If we're not dedicating ourselves to that end, who will? God chose to use weak, broken, and wounded people like you and like me to bring about the growth and the glory of his kingdom. There's something to stand in awe of and to be humbled by. But we must rise up and we must, even like Mary and Joseph in simple obedience, say, yes, I am the servant of the Lord. So be it. God, I will serve you here today, whatever you call me to be, whether it's in suffering, whether it's in plenty, whether it's in poverty, wherever you have me, Lord, whatever you have me doing, I will serve you because you are worthy, because you are the God-man who has saved and redeemed me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a beautiful, beautiful truth this is. It's too much for us to grasp, to fully understand But thank you, Lord, for giving us a glimpse. Thank you for showing us the beauty and glory of Christ. Thank you for coming, for taking on flesh, for becoming man to redeem us. And now, Lord, enable us through your spirit, enable us through that power to stand even as you are standing for us and to say, here we are, send us, use us, take us. May we bring glory to you. And Father, use this place, use this church as a beacon of hope and salvation and proclamation of the gospel in this community and around the world. We beg of you, not for our sakes, but for the name of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.